and it is he is risen, just as he said. They crucified him, nailed him to the cross. There he suffered and died for our sins. And then they put him in a grave, put a stone in front of the grave, but he would not stay there. Amen? So everything that we're going to do today, how we sing, how we treat each other, what we set our attention on, we're going to pray is in light of this glorious good news given at the graveyard that he is risen just as he said. Would you stand with me and join me in praying to the God who has power over life and death that he would meet with us here today during this worship service. Father, we are gathered today in the name of Jesus, the one who has overcome sin, death, and the grave. So, Father, we pray that we would be spirit-led in our response to this news, that Christ has been crucified in accordance with the Scriptures, and now he has been gloriously raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Thank you that he is alive and he is risen, and he will reign forevermore. So, Father, we pray that... uh, We respond in line with what you have done on our behalf. So we ask that we would be a thinking people, sober-minded, full of joy, and you would fill this sanctuary up with the praise of the redeemed. And Father, we also pray, those among us who are here that don't yet know Jesus, that who he is, what he's done and why he has done it would be made fully evident. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together in light of that glorious good news that he is alive. And this morning, I'm going to take Mark chapter 16 and the first eight verses as our passage. So if you've got a Bible or can find one there in the pew in front of you, uh, that will be the scripture that we study together and proclaim this morning. Again, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse number one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away For us from the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. We pray now, Father, in Jesus' name, that uh, this will be true of us, that we seek Jesus to know who he is, what he has done. And may we be... um, May we be active about what you have accomplished, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We may be seated. Last Sunday, I had what is, for me, a rather intimidating responsibility 
one Sunday ago, we were having our children's Easter party. And my responsibility was to teach the children. How many of you have ever taught children before? Now, teaching children is awesome, yet it's also quite challenging. So I was praying and planning and preparing to to enter that room with uh, these precious children. I love children. I love the children of Calvary Baptist Church. And and so we're going to sit there and I'm going to tell them the big picture of Easter. And so I used an illustration that I hope made sense to them. And uh, I'm actually going to use it with you because as we talk about the resurrection, we need to understand that The glorious good news is that God has fixed the biggest problem that we have. Now, we all know what problems are, right? So I'm going to put a couple of pictures on the screen. Let's take this first picture. What is the problem here? You can look on the picture and you can figure out, you can deduce that what has happened. This, this, you know why I put this picture on the screen? Because this is the one problem that happens at my house that I can actually fix. It's this, this is I can handle. In fact, I handled it yesterday. The light's gone out, so we're going to fix the problem by putting a new light bulb in, right? That's pretty clear. How about this? Let's go to the next picture. We see this in our wonderful town quite a lot, right? So what's the problem here? The potholes, right? Ever driven over a pothole? Been jarred, right? So they're paving over the pothole to smooth the road so that you can get in your car and you can go about your day. How about the next one? What's this, what's this problem? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been far from home and been there? Yeah, you got to pull over and flat tire. I don't know why a couple of road illustrations came to my mind. I'd like to be able to say I'm as good at fixing that problem as the light bulb, but not really true. How about this next problem? Any parent can relate to this, perhaps. Hopefully you've never actually been there. Anybody know what's going on here? Now, I don't know, I don't know what prize the claw comes down to grab in this instance. I only know he really wanted it, right? I mean, he got in there somehow. I don't even know the logistics of how this happens. But the boy has got himself trapped in, I was, in the game, I guess, is the way of saying it. He doesn't actually, he looks like he's still looking for what he came in there for. So he's, he's like telling them, no, I'm not ready to come out yet. So we all know what a problem is. How about this? How about this? What is the problem? What is being handled? What is this about? Right, all the other pictures we can look at and say, well, that's obvious, right? Now, here's, here's my question to you is on that day, Jesus is handling a problem. He is being crucified. But my question is, what is the problem that he is seeking to remedy and to help with that we're going to see some scriptures beginning with Isaiah 59 2 here is what articulates the problem the prophet Isaiah says but your iniquities have separated you from God your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear so if we could just do big picture Boiling it down, the problem is something that we have, here's the verb that defines the problem, they've separated us from God. 
Now, it might not have registered to you yet in life that the biggest problem you have is that you're a creation separated by sin from the Creator. But you open up this book and begin to study the Bible, the Scripture emphasizes that's the biggest problem we have. Can you imagine what would happen to us in this moment if the sun, S-U-N, went out? What would happen? We'd be done, right? We are completely dependent on the sun for its light and its energy. But the creation is just as dependent. That's an illustration of how dependent we are to have God sustaining us. Are you making your heart beat right now? Isn't it amazing that uh, human beings who have no control over their vital organs think so highly of ourselves, right? Are you sitting there saying, beat away, heart beat away? No. Why not? Because you've been knit together. You didn't call yourself into being, did you? You say, I think I'll exist. No. I didn't. You didn't. And it's a big problem that we have been separated from our life giver, from our God. The, the fall, uh, Genesis 3 teaches that what the fall is about, the iniquities, the sins, were the creation human beings seeking to replace God as God, right? That's what we did. We tried to take his place. And then how does Jesus help us with this problem? Let's go to the next scripture. How does Jesus fix our problem? He says in Luke 19:10, I came to seek and to save the lost. We're lost because we're separated from God. And Jesus takes the initiative. Now, pop quiz. Is he the one who has sinned? Is he the one responsible for the separation? No, this is what love is, friends, right? That the one not responsible for the separation seeks to bridge the separation. That's called grace, right? And then Peter, in his letter in the New Testament, said he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins. Why are we separated from God? Because of sin. He bore our sins in his body, on the tree our biggest problem is we're separated the solution to the problem is god himself has come in the flesh to bridge the gap right now let's think of it this way how do you know that that problem is solved how would you be able to say there's a problem light bulb is out we change how would you know that the problem is fixed because the light is new and shining right how about this the next one how would you know that this problem is solved the new tire is on there, right? And you're ready to roll. And how about this one? How do we know that this problem is solved? That what God sought to do in Jesus, he has done. And here's the answer. Here's how we know the problem is solved. The tomb is empty. The one who bore our sin, faced death for us, atoned for us, they put him in the tomb. And how do we know that he has the power to do what he said he could do? He walked out of the grave. Mark 16 tells us that story. And what I want to do is use this passage of scripture to um, talk about the effects of the resurrection. The effects of the resurrection. Simple question to ask is, what Mark 16 says happened, has that had any effect on your life? Because the interesting thing about sinful human beings separated from God is we get excited and fired up about all the wrong things, right? The living God has no 
appeal to sinful man, while really shallow and silly and superficial things, have a lot of appeal. Now, what we need is the effects of the resurrection to help us with these things. There's an initial response, and I want to talk to you about that here. Uh, It says, when uh, looking up, verse 4, remember they're going to the tomb, this group of women. They're going to the tomb, and they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So they're already trying to brainstorm and figure out, well, we're going to get to the tomb, and we want to put burial spices on the body of the Lord Jesus. This group of women had... um, traveled with Jesus and studied under Jesus and been a follower of Jesus. And so they're going to do an honorable thing. They want to um, put burial spices on his, on his body. But when they got there, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were, here's the word, alarmed. We're alarmed. And if you go down a little bit, When they leave from there, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. So here's the first effect of the resurrection, according to Mark 16. For those ladies, there is absolute, complete, and total alarm. You read through the Bible, have you noticed this always happens when a man or a woman encounters someone from heaven. Have you noticed this? Now what does that teach us? It teaches us something very significant. That sinful human beings, when they encounter the holiness of heaven, the first response is total alarm. Now we live in kind of a generation, right? I mean, we're not impressed by anything. We get over things really quickly. But I can assure you of this. If you've ever encountered the real holiness of God himself, the response isn't, "Eh." what did Adam and Eve do when God showed up after the fall? They did some stuff. They're terrified. So we've got to go anywhere that we can to get away from him. Now here's a question. Where can you go to get away from him? This place doesn't exist. There's no getting away from him. So first of all, there's total alarm. I probably shouldn't admit this. But I love to scare my children. There's some days during the work week that they come up here. And you just think about this. If there's nobody else in this building, I, I like to park at the back. And then I tell them it's time to go. But then I race ahead of them. And I hide somewhere in the hallway. Usually since I raced ahead of them, I have to catch my breath for a moment. Now they're, uh, particularly the older ones have picked up on this and they just walk outside and walk around and don't go down the hall. But a couple of weeks back, I won't specify who was here. One of my children was here and uh, I'd been studying and I knew where they were and I just decided I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get her. I guess that narrows it down a little bit. And oh, wow, did I ever get her. It went far beyond my hopes and expectations. I snuck up and and she was just kind of hanging out and and kind of singing to herself and she didn't know I was there and she came around the corner and I jumped out and she flipped out. She in fact, it was I'd done such a good job of scaring her that I was actually a little bit concerned. Like I might have taken this a little bit too far. And uh I did go back and rewind the video of the cameras cuz I mean I just wanted to see that and it was pretty it was pretty <laughs> 
I did get my phone out and recorded it, and I got it in my pocket just when I need a moment to, uh, probably shouldn't do that. When these ladies enter the tomb, they're alarmed, but it's not because the young man sitting there says, ha! It's because they encountered holiness. You know what I'm saying? Like true holiness, its effect on human sinfulness is significant. It's alarming when Isaiah, who is a godly man, is in the temple and he looks up and the the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple. Does he say, wow, that's really cool? No, he doesn't. He says, woe is me. I am undone. These women initially are alarmed. When I was a little child, got an Easter basket, and uh, in the basket was a little pop-up book. Do you remember pop-up books where, where you would read, and, and, or, or I don't know if pop-up book's the right way of saying but you kind of well, pop up something and it would show you a little picture hidden. I guess pop-up book, let's just go with it. And it went all through the story of Easter. But I love that book, but it didn't show anything like this. There wasn't a pop-up and the women just looked, what's the saying? Trembling, astonishment, seized them and they fled. The two encouraging things about this account, briefly, before we drive home the point that there's total alarm, is first of all, we are told that the group that went there, they were all women, right? Verse 1, and the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint him. I'm pointing this out because when Mark is written and the gospel is going forth in power, at that time and, and in that place, uh, first century Jewish mindset, uh, women were not even allowed at that time and place to give testimony in court, right? And the reason I'm pointing this out is because if you were just going to make this story up, this is not how you would make it up. In other words, the, the witnesses are the most unlikely group of people. So in, in some manner, that underscores the validity of what has happened here. And then second, not only if you were just going to make the story up, would you not do it this way, but, but uh, it also goes forth that this is probably what really happened. I mean, if, if we were just going to lie about it, we'd say, well, we went to the tomb and we saw it, man, we, we were calm, cool, and collected about it. No, their story is we flipped out, we freaked out because this power of God is at work they're stunned they're scared and this is not what they expected you want some good news here's the good news god is not bound by our expectations he can go far beyond what we anticipate in fact that's exactly what the apostle paul says in ephesians 3 he says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When the Bible talks about the gospel, it always uses the word power. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. If you've never encountered the power of God, friends, you've never encountered God. Because he is alive and he is powerful. And if your approach to him has been ho-hum or meh, 
kind of, you've not yet really encountered the living God. And that's important for your life because you will. You will encounter him. And it is alarming when it happens. I remember the first night of my life that it really dawned on me who God is when I was at a service and someone whose name I don't even remember had preached. And it was just like God had opened my eyes to his massiveness and his holiness and his power. And I felt about the size of a speck, which usually is what's required for someone to come to salvation in Jesus. He is powerful. And friends, I encourage you that he's powerful because maybe you've got it in your mind that he can't do something. Maybe you think this sinful habit that I have wrestled with forever, it feels like he can't overcome. He can. He walked out of the grave. He can overcome it. Maybe you've settled into a pattern of life where you're not really living, you're just existing. He has come up out of the grave that you might have life and have it abundantly. You think that relationship can't be restored. He can do far above what you imagine. Think that prodigal can't come home. You can look to the God of abundantly more. They're alarmed, but here's the good news. Verse 6, the first words are, do not be alarmed. Well, how is it that we cannot be alarmed? It's only one way. You seek Jesus, who was crucified. Who are they looking for? They're looking for Jesus. Now, we should be alarmed at the absolute holiness of God, but Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus has faced the wrath for us that they were so alarmed about, right? Our judge, the Lord Jesus, has stood first in our place. Now, I want to read to you a, a, a series of claims that Jesus makes in the Gospels. They're looking for Jesus. This group of women, for the majority of his three years of public ministry, had been with him. Now listen to what Jesus says about himself. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Can we just all agree for a moment that Jesus is not just some good moral teacher? Can you imagine watching the Mr. Fred Rogers show? I love Mr. Fred Rogers. My children haven't quite quite bought in yet but I like to watch it can you imagine after the end of an episode when he's talked about loving your neighbor and traveled into the land of make-believe he were to conclude the show by looking at the camera and say I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me if that happened would your response be oh, I don't know about that last part but I liked all the other stuff he said your conclusion would be this man has what he's lost his mind now Mr. Rogers never said those things Listen to this claim of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Can I take a pause here for a moment? Would that describe you to a T this morning? Weary and burdened. What did Jesus say to do? He says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, 
And here's this promise. I will give you rest. Now, I believe this. I believe that there are likely a good number of people in this room this morning. And it's been a while since you really rested. Since your mind wasn't going a thousand miles an hour. And you just rest. Jesus is our rest. Jesus proclaims in his ministry the authority to forgive sins. You can rest that he really has forgiven you. He really can free you. Jesus says, I've come to forgive sins. I've come to give life. And Jesus claimed that he himself was the truth. And Jesus backs up these claims. I mean, these are big claims, aren't they? I am the way, the truth, the life. If you're weary and heavy burden, you actually come to me. But his claims are backed up by his character. His character is on full display in a variety of instances. In the Gospels, Jesus spends time alone with his disciples. He ministers to large crowds. We see him in his childhood. We see him in his adulthood. We see him harshly criticized by his opponents. We see him improperly worshipped at times by the masses. He gets tired. He eats. He goes to sleep. And through it all, his character is on display. And if we were to summarize his character, this might not be the best word, but perhaps most of all, he is incredibly unselfish and humble. And you put those two things together, his incredible claims, I am the way, the truth, the life, but he doesn't go around haughty. He doesn't go around as Mr. Big Shot. He goes around as a servant. That's amazing. The, the night before he was crucified, he's with the disciples, right? And the scripture says, knowing that all things were, um, uh, no, knowing the time was at hand and that he was about to return to the Father. In other words, he knows this is his last night on earth. Do you know what this Christ does? He rises from the table, goes to the water basin that all the other disciples had passed by. Because at that time and place, the lowest, the lowest servant's responsibility was to wash feet. And he washes their feet. Put those two statements together. Knowing he was about to return to the Father, rising from the table, he washed their feet. Do you know who the godliest person in your home is? The one who serves everyone else. It rises up in us, doesn't it? I'm not going to do that. What's the job in your house that nobody wants to do? Well, surely that night, the job that nobody wanted to do, <laughs> and we can understand why, was to wash the feet. Friends, we're never more like Jesus than when we serve. So his character and his claims have been proclaimed for three years. Jesus taught himself to be the Lord of all, and yet he is the servant. Well, friends, I will tell you that only Jesus and in the indwelling of his Holy Spirit will help you to be a Christ-like servant long-term, right? We can all muster it up for about 15 minutes, but if you're going to be a long-term servant in your home, in your church, in this city, it's all of grace and all of Christ. I like what John Stott said about Jesus he says, Jesus was misunderstood and misrepresented. He became the victim of people's prejudices and vested interests. He was despised and rejected by his own people and deserted by his friends. He gave his back to be flogged, his face to be spat upon, his head to be crowned with thorns, his hands and feet to be nailed to a common Roman gallows. And as the cruel spikes were driven home, he kept praying for his tormentors, Father, forgive them. Now Jesus, Jesus is selfless because he is sinless. 
And these women, these women who had been with him and had heard him teach and had heard his claims, and they went to the tomb expecting to do a good work for him, not realizing the power and glorious, mighty work he has done for them. And they're alarmed. There is absolute, complete, and total alarm. But this resurrection also teaches a second. Another effect of the resurrection is that there is absolute, complete, and total victory over sin, death, and the grave. Amen? Now, if you got your spot there in Mark, I want you to hold your spot there and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. So you got a Bible and can find 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Peter's writing, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, we saw this earlier, but see it again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How do you know that you've died to sin according to verse 24? You live under righteousness. How do you know if you've been healed? By his wounds we have been healed. How do you know that that's happened? You're no longer straying, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, in Mark 16, uh, when the uh, news is being given, did you pick up on this? Verse uh, 6, do not be alarmed, he said. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. The women are given an assignment to go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why is Peter singled out? You know where he's been. Can we just recount the last couple of days for Peter, what they've been like? Remember Peter, not long after Jesus washed his feet, he stands up and says, uh, I'm going to stand with you to the end. Even if I have to die for you, you can count on me. Right? And, and then they go, just after that, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and says, watch and pray. Right? So Jesus begins to pray, and he comes back, and Peter is just out, right? Stone cold asleep. And, and, and then Jesus wakes him up, says, now I really need you to pray. Jesus goes to pray again, and Peter right back asleep. And then Judas enters the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter gets up, draws his sword, and tries to take Malchus out, right? Again, friends, the mark of a prayerless person is they always pick the wrong fight, and they're full of self-righteous anger, trying to take somebody out. And Jesus says, put your sword away. 
And then Peter follows a little bit long. And then Jesus is there before the high priest. I'm not the only one intimidated by children because Peter's just standing by the fire. And the Bible says a little girl comes up, right? And she says, aren't you, aren't you one of them that follows Jesus? And Peter says, I'm, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And then they ask him a little bit later. I don't know. And then the third time, he kind of blows up in anger. Folks are some swear words according to the scripture, right? I do not know him. And then he saw Jesus. And what happens? Rooster crows. And then Peter goes away and weeps. That's the last we've heard of Peter until this moment, right? And Peter is the primary source behind the gospel of Mark. And so Peter's recounting these things. And the angel, the young man there, says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Why do you think Peter has to be singled out? Well, if you're Peter and you hear the glorious good news that Jesus is alive, what's probably going to be your response? We're back to point number one, aren't we? <laughs> Absolute, complete, and total alarm. He's coming back to get me. I mean, I failed in every way there is to fail. Friends, did you know that's the testimony of anyone who's saved by the grace of God? I have failed in every way there is to fail. I haven't done what I said I was going to do. Some of you have made significant promises and not followed up on them. Some of us have slept so many hours when we should have been praying. Some of, some of us have picked the wrong fight at the wrong time with the wrong people. Some of us have opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And we've responded by saying, I, I don't even really know him. I don't even really know him. good news of the gospel is that our salvation is not on the basis of our performance it's not this, this is the reason Jesus came because you're never going to be good enough smart enough holy enough righteous enough you know what we bring to the table the sin that separated us from him to begin with and uh, this is what makes the claims of Christ distinct he does not give you a list of uh, jobs to perform and duties to uphold. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden. He doesn't say work harder. He says, come to me. And when the good news is being reported, hey, y'all need to go tell some people, but you need to make sure that Peter, this is the way I read it, go tell his disciples and especially Peter. Go tell his disciples and especially the one who is discouraged, depressed, defeated, worried that he has gone too far, done too much, and can no longer be of use in the kingdom of God. No, friends, there's actually complete, absolute, and total victory over sin, death, and the grave. Let me read it to you one more time and give you a slight point of emphasis. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You ready for the emphasis? First Peter 2, 24 and 25. Fifty days from Mark 16, the Lord's going to need somebody to preach. 
on the day called Pentecost. He's come up out of the grave and he needs a preacher. Now, I'm thinking, I'm kind of thinking, why not let this angel that scares everybody to death do it, right? And that'd be a pretty good idea, right? So angel, you just go to Pentecost and you preach because you have quite an effect on people. When you speak, people are alarmed. In fact, you have to kind of talk them down so you can speak. Do not be alarmed. When the angel speaks, people flee out and tremble. They're astonished. But you know who's going to preach at Pentecost, don't you? Let's turn there. Acts chapter 2. Peter thought he was finished. The resurrection of Jesus says otherwise. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. You see him? There he is. But Peter, that old denier, that old big promises, no follow through, right? Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And among all the things he said, let's just take a sample here, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's get one more point. That's our last one. There is absolute, complete, and total redemption for Peter and us. There's absolute, complete, and total redemption for Peter and us. No, it wasn't the angel proclaiming at Pentecost, it was Peter. I believe, friends, that's because the gospel of grace in Christ is best championed and proclaimed by those who have experienced it. The angel had said that you go to Galilee and there you'll see him. I think there is a connotation there that you'll see him. He'll be there, right? You'll, you'll see him. But I also believe that there is an emphasis there that you'll, you'll really finally see him. For example, Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Peter had said that 18 months or so earlier from the crucifixion. And Jesus said, you're right. Heaven has revealed this to you. But then Jesus began to teach that the son of man must suffer and die and be uh, be raised on the third day and Peter is the one who comes along and says well may, may that never be and Jesus rebuked him and said get behind me Satan you are not setting your minds on the things of heaven but on the things of man right so when the angel says you'll go to Galilee and you'll see him I think it means you'll really see him that he's the Christ 
who has suffered and now reigns. Here he is. Here's Peter. Gives them this message. We're still in Acts 2, verse 37. Say this in great contrast to, again, the generation that we live in that's impressed by such shallow things. They heard this. They were cut to the heart. Now, friends, if you can hear the gospel and it doesn't cut you to the heart, you are in significant spiritual danger. He said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I hope you understand salvation in those terms. Over and over Jesus is saying, you come to me. If you're weary, you come to me. You need rest, you come to me. God has forgiven your sin and calls you to himself. Do you see the problem's been solved? What was the problem? We were separated. Christ has come. What's the invitation? You can come to him. You can come to him. We'll conclude by me just offering you a uh, way of thinking about this that I think is helpful. The Gospels reveal three times or three places where God has done an amazing work. The first is at Bethlehem, right? Christmas time. At Christmas, they said, you'll call him Emmanuel for he's God with us. Now, I want you to think about all these in terms of what the problem was that we were separated from him, right? So now he's with us. At Calvary, the God who is with us is also the God who is, who is for us in the, in the sense of standing in our place. He's instead of us at Calvary. He's the Lamb of God who takes our punishment. Then at Pentecost, did you hear what he said? You have your sins forgiven, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So at Pentecost, God who was with us at Bethlehem, and now for us at Calvary, he becomes God in us. His spirit now dwells in us. All of that, all of that is by grace. What confirms that that is true? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can we know the problem is solved? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you at this time to stand. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we'll ask the question that they asked at Pentecost. What shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. What does that mean? I can't keep going the direction I've been going. I've been running away from God. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn around. And instead of hiding, instead of running, instead of trying to fill my life up with all manner of other things, I'm going to repent, return to my creator, God himself. By faith in the work of Jesus Christ, trust that I'm no longer separated. I have the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? And after we pray, we're going to sing together. We're going to praise the Lord together. We're going to lift his name on high. The way of thinking of it is the Jesus who was resurrected on that day is is no less alive right now than he was then. There's not a, a less power at work now than there was then. 
And so the invitation is respond in light of the resurrection. I mean, in, in some manner, how would you respond if you were there standing there? Some of us probably need to be alarmed. What am I doing with my life? Need to be alarmed. And some of us need to rejoice. If you are alarmed, quickly hear the good news. Don't be alarmed. If you seek Jesus, he's alive. He's alive. Father, I pray if there is anyone here today that finds themselves on this Easter morning in a very similar situation than what Peter found himself dealing with on that Easter morning. They're discouraged. They, they, they may even think um, there's not place for fruitful ministry for my life. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've denied. I Thank you for the good news and that you are a, one who calls us by name. God, if anybody needs a radical, glorious, restoring work, they're a believer, but it's, it's been dry. God, by your spirit, would you grant them rest? Be their water of life, be their bread of life, satisfy their thirst in Christ. And then, Father, we do pray in Jesus' name that there be anyone here today and they don't know Jesus. They've never repented and believed by the Holy Spirit's power that we see displayed at Pentecost cut to the heart. God, would you do that? For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.